Dear Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau. Canada closed the Islamic Republic of Iran's embassy is the right thing to do. Zara Ziba Kazami Ahmad Abadi, born 1948, July 11, 2003, was an Iranian-Canadian freelance photographer who went to Iran with her Iranian passport. She took photographs of possible demonstrations that took place in Tehran in July 2003. The security apparatus of the Islamic Republic of Iran's, Iri security forces apprehended her. According to the medical examiner, she was raped, tortured and killed by Iranian officials following her arrest in Iran. It appeared that a correctional officer saw Ms. Kazemi was taking photographs of the Evan prison in Tehran. The penitentiary officer demanded Kazemi to hand him the camera because taking pictures of the Evan prison was prohibited. Kazemi collaborated with the correctional officer and disclosed her press card and exposed the film to the light. The penitentiary officer retaliated by yelling at her, I did not ask you to expose your film, I told you to give me your camera. She retorted, but the film belongs to me. The correctional officer put her in his custody. While she was in custody, the security apparatus interrogated her. Kazemi met the Crown Attorney about possible charges against her with the collaboration of some intelligence officials over the next three days. On July 11, 2003, 19 days after the security forces arrested her, Kazemi died in Iranian custody in Bagi Ayatollah al Azam Military Hospital. Two days later, Iran's official Erna News Agency reported that Kazemi had suffered a stroke while interrogated and died in hospital. This account changed to one that Kazemi had died after falling and hitting her head. On July 16, 2003, Iran's vice president, Muhammad Ali Abtahi, conceded that Kazemi died due to being beaten. Muhammad Ali Abtahi, vice president of legal affairs, and Masoud Piskian, minister of health and medical education, admitted that she died of a fractured skull due to being hit in the head. Abtahi claims that he was under a lot of pressure to take back the acknowledgement, but he resisted it. The Islamic Republic of Iran's relationship began to enter a new realm that no one was expecting. Iranian dissidents in Canada accused Iranians that they had tied with the regime in Iran as a spy and wanted the embassy to shut down in Ottawa. When Stephen Harper was elected to the Prime Minister's office, he was under pressure for countless reasons to cut ties with the Islamic Republic of Iran. Canada for the second time in September 2012, when Canada closed its embassy in Tehran and expelled Iranian diplomats from Ottawa for various reasons, including Iran's noncompliance with United Nations Security Council resolutions regarding its nuclear program and Iran's regional policies. Since then, Italy has been Canada's protective power in Iran. In 2012, Canada listed Iran as a state supporter of terrorism under the State Immunity Act and also listed the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, Codes Force as a terrorist entity under the Criminal Code. 1. The Islamic Republic of Iran is bidimensional in the negative direction of political standard, whether from domestic or foreign policy evaluation. The domestic policy of the IRI deemed as a failed state which is failing intentionally to provide basic needs to its citizens such as keeping Iranians destitute from having access to health, medicine, food, economic prosperity, infrastructure investments, education and many more shortcoming of the IRI to invest Iran's wealth in Iran and preventing Iranian from growth. The foreign policy of the IRI is defined as a rogue state as it is continuously harboring terrorism in the Middle East region and around the globe. The Erie is notorious for its foreign policy not to use diplomatic venues to resolve its differences with others but to rely on harsh and coercive methods to create fear, fraud, 
and forced to silence those advocating simple ideas against the eerie. This paper aims to discuss Canada's history with Iran, discussing the formation of the eerie as a threat to global safety and security. During the reign of the Pahlavi dynasty, Iranians came to Canada and attended McGill University to gain capital knowledge. When Iranians graduated from the above university, they returned to Iran and contributed to the growth and development of Iran. During the reign of the Pahlavi dynasty, some Canadian students who recently graduated from the University of British Columbia from the forest programs gained employment with Iran's forestry and came to Iran. They worked in Iran, found spouses for themselves and remained in Iran. The 1973 oil crisis began in October 1973 when the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. The embargo targeted nations supporting Israel during the Yom Kippur War. Countries like Canada, Japan, the Netherlands, the United Kingdom and the United States. The embargo also later extended to Portugal and South Africa. The ban caused the supply to go down and demand to increase, and oil prices to rise. Therefore, the price of oil began to move upward from 3 US dollars per barrel to almost 12 dollars globally. Iran did not take part in the Arab and Israel conflict. Iran had a long history of friendship between Israel and Iran. It can be traced to the dawn of history when Cyrus the Great, circa 600 or 576 to 530 BC, figures in the Hebrew Bible as the patron and deliverer of the Jews. He is mentioned 23 times by name and alluded to several times more. According to the Bible, Cyrus the Great, king of the Achaemenid Empire, was the monarch who ended the Babylonian captivity. Esther, a Jewish girl, married the king of King Xerxes. Esther asked the king to help her save the Jewish from genocide. The king did not know Haman wanted to eradicate the Jewish from his kingdom. When the king became aware of Haman's plan, the king ended Haman's plan. During World War II, European countries persecuted Jewish people. Abdel Hussein Sardari 1914-1981, was an Iranian diplomat stationed in Paris. He is credited with saving thousands of Jews in Europe, he has since been known as the Iranian Schindler or the Schindler of Iran. The Nazi system was leaning toward the National Socialist perception and deemed Iranians as Aryan. Thus, the Nazis declared Iranians immune to all Nuremberg laws since 1936 because Iranians were pure-blooded Aryans, according to the Nazi racial theory. The founder of the Pahlavi dynasty, Reza Shah the Great, protected Iranian Jews whose families had been present in Iran since the Persian Empire. Reza Shah the Great strongly argued this point to the Germans and ascertained explicitly that the Iranian Jews were protected under these statutes. The Nazis grudgingly agreed and accordingly, many Persian Jews were saved from harassment and eventually deportation by the Nazi regime. Sardari went further when he realized the fundamental nature of Nazi ambitions, he began issuing hundreds of Iranian passports for non-Iranian Jews to save them from persecution. To safeguard his plan, he did not ask for permission, and he interpreted the law that he had the consent of the king to issue passports to the Jewish people in Iran. His actions were later confirmed and applauded by the government of Iran. Coming back to the focal point of this paper, in 1973, the price of oil spiked not because of Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi's intention but because of the Arab and Israel conflict. However, the Western countries began to blame Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi for causing the oil price to rise. Canada began to have a belligerent attitude toward Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi's domestic and foreign policies. Adrian Clarkson was working for the Fifth Estate before becoming Governor General of Canada. 
In this interview, she accused the king of raising the price of oil. The king said that he did not cause the oil price to go up. She accused the king of inflation. The king did not cause inflation. She accused the king of human rights violations. Iran's secret service did not violate human rights. Canada did not like to see Iran as a modern and progressive nation due to the colonialist view toward the Middle East nations. Canada wanted free oil from Iran, and the king stood against the countries that wanted to colonize Iran. Colonialism is a practice or policy of control by one people or power over other people or areas, often by establishing colonies and generally with economic dominance. Canadian politicians did not care about the welfare of Canadians. In the 1995 Ontario provincial election, Conservative Party leader Mike Harris had a landslide victory over New Democrat part of Bob Ray. Mike Harris inaugurated a vicious campaign against vulnerable people in the province by repealing rent control. Now, the landlords could increase the rents arbitrarily. Consequently, the number of homeless individuals began to rise. Shortly after assuming office, the Harris government announced that several hundred nurses would be laid off to cut costs in the health sector. The government also implemented a series of hospital closures and amalgamations on the recommendations of a health services restructuring commission. Harris compared the laid-off hospital workers to the people who lost their jobs after the hula hoop fad died down in the early 1960s, commenting, just as hula hoops went out and those workers had to have a factory and a company that would manufacture something else that's in, it's the same in government, and you know, governments have put off these decisions for so many years that restructuring sometimes is painful. The Harris government cut funding of major urban infrastructure projects upon assuming office. Though construction had already begun on the Eglinton West subway in Toronto, a proposed rapid transit line to ultimately link the city's main north-slash-south subway line with the suburbs and airport, funding was cancelled shortly after Harris's election. Harris's government also cut health spending to counter the $30 billion cut in transfer payments from the Liberal federal government. It also introduced Telehealth Ontario, a 24-hour toll-free telephone helpline with a live connection to registered nurses. Harris also announced funding vehicles such as the Ontario R&D Challenge Fund, the Ontario Innovation Trust, and the Premier's Research Excellence Awards. One part of the common sense revolution was to sell off various government-owned enterprises, the largest of which was Ontario Hydro and the Liquor Control Board of Ontario. Neither was actually sold off, but Ontario Hydro was split into five successor companies, the two largest being Ontario Power Generation and Hydro One representing generation and distribution of power, respectively, with the plan of eventually selling them off. Public opposition to the sale of these money-making government enterprises postponed the government's agenda. In 1999, Highway 407 was leased to a private consortium. Harris accused on debt and deficit on welfare recipients because they were lazy and did not want to work. He asked the universities to increase the tuition fees and making the professional schools challenging to enroll. Harris's government reduced Ontario welfare rolls by 500,000 people, critics contend these cuts led to a rise in homelessness and poverty. Supporters argued that high welfare rates had created disincentives to find entry-level jobs and that poverty levels remained relatively unchanged between 1995 and 2005. Employment rates increased significantly during the late 1990s. The government rewrote labor laws to require secret ballot votes before workplaces could unionize. The previous NDP government's law outlawing the hiring of replacement workers during strikes was repealed. 
Mike Harris was hurting people and claimed the life of Kimberly Rogers, who was receiving standard Ontario welfare benefits of $520 per month while paying $450 per month in rent. From 1996 to 1999, she also received a total of $49,000 in student loans from the Ontario Student Assistance Program, OSAP, to study social services at the city's Cambrian College. Rogers graduated with a grade point average, GPA, of 3.5. When Rogers first began her studies, receiving both welfare and student loans was legal. Still, the practice was banned in 1996 by the progressive conservative government of Mike Harris as part of its welfare reform legislation. Rogers continued to receive both welfare and student loans after the practice became illegal. There was no evidence that she was ever informed of the change in regulations. In the fall of 1999, the Welfare Office learned of her student loans and ordered Rogers to repay $13,486 in benefits. With the overpayment automatically deducted from her monthly welfare check, Rogers was left with $18 each month after paying her rent. As well, she was facing criminal charges for welfare fraud. On April 25, 2001, Rogers pleaded guilty to fraud before Justice Greg Rogers of the Ontario Court of Justice. Justice Greg Rogers stated that she had engaged in almost four years of deception and dishonesty. I'm satisfied you did not lead an opulent lifestyle, even with these two sources of income, Justice Rogers said in his verdict, but welfare is there for people who need it, not for people who want it, who want things and who want money. Rogers, who was pregnant at the time of her trial, was sentenced to six months of house arrest, permitted to leave the house for medical, religious or shopping reasons only on Wednesday mornings, and a maximum of three hours. She was ordered to repay the total amount of her overpayment. With a fraud conviction, Ontario Works suspended her welfare benefits for three months. With no source of income, Rogers' landlord temporarily agreed to reduce her rent to $300 a month. Community groups such as the Elizabeth Fry Society and the Social Planning Council of Greater Sudbury rallied to find food and financial assistance for her. Her doctor lobbied the government to have drug benefits that had previously been covered by welfare reinstated because Rogers could not pay for her prescribed medications, including antidepressants, and drugs to alleviate pregnancy-related nausea. A Toronto lawyer, Sean Duart, launched a constitutional appeal on Rogers' behalf, successfully having Rogers's welfare suspension reversed by Justice Gloria Epstein. On May 31, 2001, Epstein ruled that for a member of our community carrying an unborn child to be homeless and deprived of basic sustenance is a situation that would adversely affect the public, its dignity, its human rights commitments and its health care resources. Rogers's body was found in her apartment on August 11, 2001, by Terry Pytila. Eight months pregnant, she had been dead for several days in an apartment without air conditioning. At the time, Sudbury was subject to a record-breaking heat wave, with six days of temperatures over 30 degrees Celsius, during the week of Rogers' death. A formal inquest was convened in October 2002. On its first day, the inquest was informed that the actual cause of Rogers' death was suicide by an amitriptyline overdose. Rogers may have altered her antidepressant prescription to ensure that she had a sufficient supply of medication to constitute a lethal dose. However, they were asked to review the impact of the government's welfare fraud policy on Rogers' decision to commit suicide. On December 19, 2002, the jury delivered its decision. 
Their first recommendation was that the lifetime suspension of benefits should be eliminated, temporary suspension would still be permitted as a penalty but could no longer be imposed retroactively on a person whose fraud conviction predated the adoption of the legislation. The jury also indicated that suspension and or prosecution should not necessarily be automatic. Each case should be evaluated by Ontario Works Administrators and or a stakeholder committee to determine the most appropriate response to the individual situation. As well, the jury ruled that drug benefits should not be suspended even when regular benefits were, that Ontario Works should make more effort to uncover fraud situations earlier so that the penalties had a less emotional and financial impact on the recipient, and that the government should review the adequacy of social assistance rates, which until then had not been raised since the Harris government cut the rate to $520 per month in 1996. As well, the jury made several recommendations to other government ministries. They ruled that the government had a responsibility to ensure that a person under house arrest had access to adequate shelter, food and medication, as well as an obligation to help individuals on probation or parole locate the appropriate community services to assist their adjustment back into society. They also recommended it improve communication between government departments, in response to evidence that Justice Rogers had not known that a fraud conviction would lead to a suspension of Kimberly Rogers' benefits, and clearer communication to citizens of both the definition and the potential consequences of welfare fraud. The jury also recommended several improvements in the province's medical system to prevent potential abuse, including creating a computer database network to improve pharmacies' access to a patient's prior prescription records. Doctors would also be asked to write out prescriptions in both numbers and text to reduce the possibility of medications being altered and review the use of tricyclic antidepressants. The government of Ernie Eves did not implement any of the Rogers Inquest's recommendations before it was defeated in the 2003 provincial election. Community and Social Services Minister Brenda Elliott dismissed the recommendations as unnecessary tinkering with a was working effectively system. In early 2004, the government of Dalton McGuinty implemented a 3% increase in welfare rates, followed by an annual cost of living increase, and eliminated the lifetime suspension of benefits. However, the McGuinty government never implemented most of the inquest's other recommendations. Social Planning Council of Greater Sudbury Chair Janet Gasparini, a prominent media commentator in the Rogers case, was elected to Greater Sudbury City Council in the 2003 municipal election. Shortly after his first election win in 1995, Harris faced his first crisis as premier. Protesters fighting land claim issues took over a provincial park 200 kilometers west of Toronto. During a confrontation with the demonstrators, Ontario Provincial Police Acting Sergeant Kenneth Dean fired on First Nations demonstrators who had occupied the park, killing a protester named Dudley George. In the inquiry following the shooting, it was determined that while some protesters were carrying rocks, sticks and baseball bats, none were carrying firearms. The confrontation that led to the shooting began when police clashed with a protester armed with a steel pipe. The government and the OPP maintained that there was no political involvement in the shooting. Still, inside the legislature, where parliamentary privilege outweighs any civil claims, several opposition politicians suggested that the attack may have been ordered by the Premier's office and called for an independent judicial inquiry. In a court case that went to the Supreme Court of Canada, Dean maintained that he was not under orders to shoot and was convicted of criminal negligence causing death. An inquiry headed by Commissioner Justice Sidney Linden was called after the government of Dalton McGuinty was elected in 2003. On November 28, 2005, 
Former Attorney General Charles Harnick testified before the Ipperwash inquiry that Harris had shouted, I want the fucking Indians out of the park at a meeting with Ontario Provincial Police Officer Ron Fox, hours before the shooting occurred, Canadian Press, November 28, 2005. Other witnesses have disputed this account, and Harris himself denied it in his testimony on February 14, 2006, at the inquiry. According to the Ontario Court of Justice History Project, the Ipperwash inquiry found that the OPP, the provincial government led by Premier Mike Harris, and the federal government all bore responsibility for the events that led to George's death. The report also called on the federal government to issue a public apology and return Camp Ipperwash, along with compensation, to the Kettle and Stony Point First Nation. In Volume 1 of the report, it was noted that Premier Harris's comments and generally the speed at which he wished to end the occupation of Ipperwash Park, created an atmosphere that unduly narrowed the scope of the government's response to the Aboriginal occupation. Acting Sergeant Ken Dean, October 1961, February 25, 2006, was convicted of criminal negligence causing death. Dean's defense was that he had believed that Dudley George was carrying a rifle. The judge rejected Dean's claim, stating that he had invented it in an ill-fated attempt to disguise the fact that an unarmed man had been shot. He sentenced Dean to a conditional sentence of two years less a day to be served in the community and 180 hours of community service. The Islamic Republic of Iran provided technical advisors to the Iraqi government and weapons to the Kurdish Peshmerga. Several sources, among them Reuters, believe that since mid-June 2014, Iranian combat troops have been in Iraq, which Iran denies. Two U.S. sources contend that in June or July 2014, Iran started an air war against ISIL. The Islamic Republic of Iran and the Syrian Arab Republic are close strategic allies. Iran has provided significant support for the Syrian government in the Syrian civil war, including logistical, technical, and financial aid, training, and some combat troops. Dean unsuccessfully appealed the verdict to the Ontario Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court of Canada. In September 2001, he pled guilty to discreditable conduct under the Police Services Act and, in January 2002, was ordered to resign. He later worked in security at an Ontario Hydro nuclear station. On February 25, 2006, he died in a car accident when his vehicle collided with a semi-truck near Prescott. He died at the scene. He was to testify at the Ipperwash inquiry in a few weeks. The Islamic Republic of Iran is a threat to global security due to many human rights violations and terrorism. This piece covers only the persecution of Baha'is in Iran. The Erie has a long history of persecuting religious minority groups in Iran. More than 200 Baha'is were killed or executed, hundreds more were tortured or imprisoned, and tens of thousands lost jobs, access to education, and other rights, all solely because of their religious belief. Since 2005, more than 710 Baha'is have been arrested, and the number of Baha'is in prison has risen from fewer than five to a current figure of 136, roughly 600 more are engaged with the penal system, awaiting trial, for example, or awaiting sentencing. The incarcerated now include young mothers of nursing children, imprisoned with their infants. Since the summer of 2013, the escalation of attacks has included both murder and attempted murder. These attacks are believed to be religiously motivated hate crimes. In 2004, Iranian authorities demolished the shrine and gravesite of Muhammad Ali Barfarishi, Kudus, a Babi leader. In late 2005, an anti-Baha'i media campaign was launched in Iran, 
asserting that the religion was created by colonialist powers to subvert Islam and subjugate Iran's Muslim peoples. In 2006 Iranian officials arrested 54 Baha'is, primarily young people, in Shiraz. In March and May 2008, the seven senior members who form the leadership of the Baha'i community in Iran were arrested. Several agencies, experts, and journals have published concerns about viewing the developments as a case of genocide, Romeo Dallaire, Genocide Watch, Sentinel Project for Genocide Prevention, the journals War Crimes, Genocide, and Crimes Against Humanity and Journal of Genocide Research. A summary of 2013 incidents of prison sentences, fines and punishments showed that these were more than twice as likely to apply to Baha'is as any other religious minority in Iran. The total rate of such cases had gone up by 36% over 2012. On May 14, 2008, members of an informal body known as the Friends, Iran, that oversaw the needs of the Baha'i community in Iran were arrested and taken to Evan Prison. Officers from the Ministry of Intelligence in Tehran searched and raided the homes of the six people in the early hours of May 14. The arrest of the six follows the detention of another Baha'i leader in March, who was originally taken to answer questions relating to the burial of a Baha'i in the Baha'i Cemetery in Mashhad. The Iran Human Rights Documentation Center has stated that they are concerned for the safety of the Baha'is and that the recent events are similar to the disappearance of 25 Baha'i leaders in the early 1980s. In May, Amnesty International also announced an action alert about the arrests. At year's end, all seven members of the Baha'i national leadership and a total of at least 40 Baha'is were imprisoned in Iran. On February 17, 2009, Iranian state-run news agency Erna reported that the Baha'i leaders had been officially accused of espionage. The U.S. and Saudi Arabia also accused Iran's allies in Lebanon and Syria of supporting the Yemeni government in Sana'a. Iran has also deployed submarines and warships off Yemen's coast, in the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea, ostensibly to conduct anti-piracy operations. Now, the Islamic Republic of Iran assisted the Taliban forces in attacking the Afghanistan government. The Islamic Republic of Iran has a long list of the assassination of dissidents outside of Iran. In conclusion, the Islamic Republic of Iran is not a system that understands the meaning of diplomacy and the art of politics. It is a system which relies on a heavy hand to silence anyone who may think outside of the guidelines of the 1979 revolution. Canada cannot open its door to the Erie and must shut its entrance on the Erie until there is a regime change in Iran. Canada cannot become a haven for the Erie to stash cash while it has a long history of raping women and children. The founder of Erie Khomeini said that Iran is booty. Today, those individuals who took part in the 1979 revolution in Iran feel they have the prerogative to plunder Iran's wealth and rape women and children without consequences. When Canada is allowing the Erie's agent to come to Canada, Canada is making this country unsafe for Canadians, and is taking part in raping women and children. Canada must end its diplomacy of accommodating the Erie human rights violations. End note. 1 Canada, G. A. 2016. February 5th. Canada, Iran Relations. GAC. https colon slash slash www.canadainternational.gc.ca slash Iran slash Canada Iran slash Canada Iran dot asks. Lang equals ang. Copyright 2021 Payment ADL Dousty Ha. All rights reserved.